from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast Thank you again for asking me and I will uh say what I have to say and hope that it will make some sense to you That's how 91-year-old historian Romila Thapar began her talk at the India International Center on the 14th of January. The talk almost didn't happen after protests over her being invited to give the Dr. C.D. Deshmukh Memorial Lecture. On social media platforms like Twitter, the tweets of protest continued for hours after she had delivered the speech. If you weren't clued in, it was mystifying. Why this such strong protest against Thapar, who is a professor emerita at the Jawaharlal Nehru University and an eminent historian? Thapar's own speech laid out the issues with Indian history over the years and the problem with how non-historians are possibly willfully misinterpreting history to suit a larger political project. But how should history deal with myths, especially religious ones? For that, we're speaking with mythologist Devdutt Patnaik, who says history may not always yield convenient truths to suit myths. In today's episode, Devdutt talks with my colleague Jairaj Singh and me about Thapar's speech, why a generation of historians is presently being vilified and the problem with letting ideology dictate history devnath let's start with the romila thapar speech itself after the speech there was a lot of outrage on places like twitter and instagram over thapar allegedly having linked yudhishthira and ashoka um, now that's not even something she said in this speech what is this issue over even connecting yudhishthira and ashoka see uh, one has to be careful with what trolls say and uh, because they are coming from ideology and they're coming from gaslighting and it's important to clarify that and in this case it's a clear case of deliberately misunderstanding what someone says and i don't want to get into the academics of it but you see what has happened is the whole idea of ashoka's talking about regret in war you know so we know about there is an ashokan edict where there is a regret for the kalingan war and in the mahabharat epic there is a dialogue where yudhishthira regrets the violence in the war right question is what came first now first of all yudhishthira's dialogue for an ideology someone who believes mahabharat is history and mahabharat text is the actual record of thoughts and ideas which happened then then mahabharat and that speech happened 5000 years ago so they believe that okay yudhishthira actually would have made this speech 5000 years ago it is recorded in sanskrit and we have that and for that person obviously that is the older book it's a historical reportage and whatever ashoka writes is a later event which happened 2300 years ago now let's look at how historians will look at it they'll say well the earliest written record in india the first written record ashoka is the first time we have a script and is brahmi script and we know that there is a regret being shown for the kalinga war there's a first record of a king talking about regret is also globally very significant then you have the mahabharat manuscripts uh, written over time and we know that uh, this is uh, in sanskrit this is a later form of sanskrit the dating varies depending on where who is you're talking to it's very complicated because it's like a palimpsest there are a lot of people a lot of ideas coming in but bota moti it is between the mauryan period and the gupta period that's broad consensus at best you will say it's a contemporary of ashoka if you want to be very lenient and if you don't want to be lenient you will say it came after the manuscript mahabharat document 
uh, was written and so therefore the this dialogue or Yudhishthira's comment was written, written, less than 2000, this came later. And is written by whom? It is written by a storyteller, probably Vyasa. And um, maybe this person who wrote it down was influenced by this comment written by Ashoka. But assuming that he could understand what Ashoka has written and read that particular inscription. So a lot of ifs and buts. But it's a statement which perhaps Romila Thapar would have made that Mahabharat shows the influence of Ashoka. This obviously triggers people who believe that the mother of all religions is Hinduism. Everything started with India. It's an ideological thing. And the problem with many historians, early historians in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, they would try to show that everything in India comes from Buddhists. That's a school of thought. Everything comes from Buddhists and later appropriated by Brahmins. And the, this whole idea of taking things from shows Brahmins as oppressors and it fits into the narrative of caste. It fits into the narrative of evil Brahmins and so there is this other conversation happening. And I think Romila Thapar becomes a kind of a symbolic battleground on which the person who is, let's call them Brahmin friendly, gets offended by any suggestion that a Brahminical epic is influenced by a Buddhist king called Ashoka. And that's what you're finding. This fight is happening at an ideological level. It has nothing to do with facts. It has nothing to do with history. It has nothing to do with mythology literature, nothing. It's an ideological fight. It's an old fight and it's a political fight. But that's what's going on right now. Ideology is shaping history and historians are on a back foot. The whole idea that history is objective is not true for every scholar of history knows that a historian brings their own prejudice into their uh, writings and arguments. You minimize it, but it is there. But it doesn't mean the ideology is objective at all. I mean, the object, ideology doesn't even pretend to be objective. If you start believing that Mahabharat manuscript was written 5,000 years ago, Mahabharat took place even before there is archaeological evidence of farming, now that's a different con. You can't have a conversation with those people. Deepthit, speaking of uh, Romila Thapar and, um, you know, many historians of her view are fierce critics of this colonial segmentation of the study of Indian history, you know, into Islam, Hindu and British periods. Is that one reason why she becomes sort of, uh, you know, dis increasingly disliked by the right? She's a symbol. Attacking her is symbolic. You know, so I don't think anyone attacking her has actually read her stuff or even if they read it, understand it. Those attacking her are doing it because they've been told to attack her. She's very powerful symbolically. Um, even amongst the historians, the younger historians, critique her work, challenge her work, point the errors in her, both in her data accumulation and analysis, what is kept in, kept out. So in the historical world, there is a critique of her which is based on a proper academic process. The British were the first people to introduce, in a way, history to India. History is a 150-year-old subject, right? Scientific historiography, which is based on evidence, which is... And it's even the understanding, history as a subject has evolved in the last 150 years. The British came and said, okay, Indians don't seem to have a history. They seem to be talking about mythology. That's why the mythology got a bad word. And they said, you know, we will tell Indians what history is going to be. And they went about doing it. And, of course, some of the... Colonial historians have done very good job. Uh, some of them have uh, also done bad jobs. There are those who have been genuine, 
and there are those who have been political manipulative playing games but what one of the big thing which happened was they divided indian history into three parts they said really civilization came with the europeans so there's the european part the colonial part and they they very cleverly they said this is the age of enlightenment before us there were the muslims and remember when they came to india india was ruled by the moguls uh, moguls were the powerful ones they had to battle the moguls and then of course there were the sultans in the deccan region and they saw a country which was ruled by uh, muslim rulers and most of the subjects were hindu uh, for them hinduism was paganism polytheism inferior islam they hated since the crusades and this is the period before this was a hindu period uh, they did not know about buddhism at that time buddhism was something which was discovered in the 19th century um, the greek records had some information about alexander coming to india and that could be dated but we really didn't have a date system for india like who came first then the mauryans came first guptas came later chalukyas later cholas later this is really the british contribution this was not there in indian thought the dating was done in a very different way you know they would date it from kalyug or vikram samvat so whatever we should grant the fact that history historical ideas as we know it today came with the british they structured in a particular way and they divided this into india into this their history then the muslim history and the pre muslim history which they called hindu now historians today challenge that and say the pre islamic history is not hindu that is a very simplistic way of saying it there was a buddhist period there was a vedic period and then you know there is this use of religion the use of religion to divide history they said is a colonial exercise done precisely to divide the country i mean that argument can be challenged but it's a point of view but very interestingly this view of history which the colonizers brought to india is something which the right wing hindutva loves because it sort of says yes that's true hazar saal ki gulami was the second and third period and before that there was the flourishing hindu civilization decolonization talk is all nonsense they want those parts of the colonial discourse which works for them and this is something we have to be aware of that the this hazar saal ki gulami and everything was wonderful in india before the muslims came is really a colonial idea the colonizers said there was a hindu period there was a muslim period and then there was a british period that's how they divided and that is the story which is told on whatsapp today uh, which is works politically it's simple it's easy to understand it makes hindus the victims it makes allows Mus- uh, hindu politicians to see themselves as saviors and all muslims become evil also a lot of this comes for against historians in particular because we want to place faith in history right like you said that we want yudhishthira to have come before ashoka we want science to somehow bend almost like light to bend and then somehow say that yes this is true somehow and isn't that a problem when even with our faith itself you know like we have multiple versions of say even the mahabharat or the ramayana history is striving towards objectivity it's trying to be factual and it is based on doubt every historian says that you know based on this evidence this is the conclusion i have so there are many people who have questions about the way romila thapar has reached a particular conclusion you know there is a particular mindset that you have we don't agree with your writing so that is how history emerges faith on the other hand it doesn't think doubt doesn't consider doubt whatever the guruji says is true guruji is right 
Guruji has read everything. Guruji is beyond texts. He can see cosmic dimensions. That's a very different way of thinking and you can't put these two people together. A very different approaches. So the historians in a proper academic setup read history in a particular way and the followers of Guruji and WhatsApp University follow a very different way. You cannot put them on the same platform by using words like ideology, decolonization. Nowadays, there's this whole bunch of people. Most of them are Brahmins. Most of them are coming from educated backgrounds, but they're not that successful in their respective field. And there is a kind of a rage that they have been treated very badly. And therefore, they are becoming the defenders of Hindutva. They're using this clever language, but ultimately surrendering to the Guruji's version of history. So then what explains this rage against historians over how they've interpreted Indian history? What the British did is very interesting. They realized uh, the, to attack the Muslims, they kept talking about how Muslims destroyed Indian culture and they claimed that we will save you. So they, this whole idea of savior, even before the Hindutva movement started, is what the British said, we will save India. But the moment the British became very powerful, now they didn't care about the Muslims anymore because now they're the kings. They started attacking them. They realized now the threat is the Brahmin. And they started creating a different narrative, like the Sati discourse. Oh, the Hindus burn their widows. And that became a huge conversation. So now let's look at these two stories. Muslim broke temples and Hindus burn widows. Both these stories are now there. First, they were, we have to save them from the Muslims who broke the temples. The second was, we have to now civilize these barbarians whose priests burn widows. And all those conversations are in, in Bengal region, when really the sati practices and the center of center is Rajasthan. And the kind of monuments that you have in Rajasthan for sati practices not found in Bengal. And the sati stones are also found in southern part of India in the pre-Islamic period. Now, let's move to the 21st century. You look at historians. You read all the historians, which we, are, we call the Marxist historians, Western historians. They typically will play down the story of temple breaking. So you have Romila Thapar's book on Somnath, where it almost feels when you read the book that she is saying that, you know, it was not a big deal. It was a political act. It was not a religious act. It was more media management. And then you have scholars like Eaton who will tell you that not many temples were broken. This is basically belief. It is not fact. And he gives this wonderful table of barely 60 temples were broken over so many hundreds of years. And therefore, it's not a big thing. We are making a big deal out of nothing. When you've grown up all your life being told that, you know, Hindu temples were broken by Muslim kings, a historian comes around and says, you know what, it's not a big deal. And to add insult to injury, they will go around saying that, you know, even before the Muslims came, Hindu kings attacked each other and broke each other's temples. So, you know, break, temple breaking is part of the political system. It's not a big deal. Don't try to make a big deal out of it. You're yelling too much. And you feel a little violated. You're saying, you know what, from are you saying that my pain is not real? And that's what science has done. These historians have now telling a whole generation of Hindus that the temple breaking story which the British created was not really that big deal. And that's hurting a lot of people. These uh, same Marxist historians will say, yeah, yeah, Sati problem was a real problem. Indians needed to reform themselves. 
Sati is the real problem. Temple building is not. Now you go to a right-wing ideology stories. Go to the RSS Shakhas. And you read the right-wing historians. Right-tilting, right ideology ideas. And they will suddenly give you the opposite view. That, oh, no, no, no. Temple building was the worst thing that happened. It was horrible, 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 horrible. And Sati was not so... You know, def they'll deflate the argument. They'll say the Sati was a very minor thing and the British created this Afwa and temple building was the real, real, real thing. And how does the left-wing historian look at untouchability? And how does the right-wing historian look at untouchability? The right-wing historian, typically of Brahmin background, will say it was division of labor, it was not so big, it was fluid. I have actually heard people saying that the, um, they misread this book called Castes of the Mind, saying that the British documented everything and really it is the British who created the caste system. Which is not true. Historians know that um, the words like achep and all was used in the 17th century, 16th century, where clearly there was this idea of untouchables there. Buddhism. How does the left wing approach Buddhism? That all wonderful things in India came from Buddhists. The right wing will say that's not true. Buddhism was part of Hinduism. They were really the same thing. There was no difference between them. So please don't try to take away Hindu achievements and claim that the Hindus stole it from the Buddhists. This kind of extremism is gets the attention unfortunately you know sober historians who balance both the views are boring they are not they they don't get attention devdit as we are increasingly in a time when uh, mythology and history are, the lines between them are blurring and as someone as you know as as a celebrated mythologist how do you see um, this this blurring of lines and and how do you make this distinction say when you write about mythology and when you delve into history. See, I know the power of faith and belief. And I respect the power of faith and belief. I know the gaslighting is a very powerful technique that is used to shape belief. I know how Guruji's manipulate things. I know how religious leaders and political leaders have always valued the bard over the historian. Right? The bard tells you what you want to hear. Whether it's the judges, whether it's the bureaucrats, whether it is the army, whether it is the media, nobody should challenge the authority of the king. The king loves bards who tells you exactly what his vision of the world should be. But science does not care for authority in principle. In principle, in its finest form, science does not care for authority. It does not care for testimonials. It doesn't care for kings. It is based on shanka, doubt. So I understand this delta very clearly. I'm educated in science background and I study something which is based on imagination and faith. And I do not privilege rationality. I do not privilege fact. The delusion of rationality and all that. I understand that game very well. The earth sciences and technology facts are important. But in human relationships, facts are not important. To maintain friendships, many a times you have to not argue the truth. You also know from psychology that what we think is the truth may not be the truth. There is something called manufactured consent. There is something called false memory syndrome. We are deluded and therefore fact and fiction are very different. And what is fiction? What is myth? I separate them. I simplify it, of course. Uh, I know it's not that simple. Uh, but I also realize as I'm studying the subject how complex these subjects are. And the common man doesn't have patience for all that. Common mans want simple answers and politicians know this. So they give them simple answers. You know, you will say that I think I've lost weight. But uh, 
the doctor will measure you and say that, you know what, no, you're not really lost weight, you've lost water, and you'll hate those doctors. Because the doctor is not agreeing with what you believe. The Guruji will always try to comfort you. He'll try to make you feel good about yourself. You see all those self-help books which are coming with all these Gurujis. They were supposed to be Krishna Bhakts and Ram Bhakts, but they're all talking self-help books. They're all giving you Dale Carnegie advice, but saying Krishna said it. And they're con men. And, uh, but they'll be popular because they are not challenging you. And they are also telling you, don't challenge us. And it's a create space where I don't challenge you, you don't challenge me. Uh, there is no doubt, there's only faith and it feels safe. You feel very, very safe. Science doesn't make you feel safe. So, we are living in this world where we have to always deal with fact, fiction and myth. It's never going to go away. And I think that's what I've understood in my study of mythology, that human beings don't want to solve problems. They want to feel good about not solving problems. Very few people want to really solve problems. They want to really be told, it's okay, it's okay, it's ho jayega. I love that person. I love the person who motivates me. I don't like the person who criticizes me. If we are in an era where everyone tells you who a villain is and um, how you should avenge history that you've never seen and perhaps nobody you know has ever seen, uh, how do we deal with that? What do our scriptures then tell us to deal with, say, things like avenging or uh, even preservation of the faith? So, honestly, Hindu mythology doesn't talk about avenging at all. Avenging angel... <laughs> You know, is not existing. So I'll tell you a Jain story. And, you know, the Jain story will say, once upon a time there was a king and uh, he went out hunting and he meets the sage and um, the sage doesn't salute him. And the king gets angry and he takes a dead snake and puts it on the uh, sage's neck. It's a story. Now the Hindu version of the story will say that the sage was meditating, his son saw this and he curses the king that you will also die of a snake bite. So he gets angry. The sage doesn't say anything. And in fact, when the sage wakes up, he tells, looks at the son and says, why did you tell this to the sage? What You have behaved like a lesser being for all the education and all the Vedanta and all the Veda that you have learned. Why did you submit to anger? Why did you seek revenge? That means your ego is more powerful than Atma. Now this is not going to be taught by politicians, no? Because this story is talking about forgiveness, moving on. Justice is violence. Justice and violence gives you power. So both the left wing and the right wing will always talk about justice. They'll never talk about let go, chordo, forgiveness, which is what the scriptures teach us. At least Hindu scriptures, Jain scriptures, Buddhist scriptures, even the New Testament, you know, turn the other cheek, let it go, chordo, Lord, forgive the sinners. We want violence. We want vengeance. We, it's so much more dramatic. I mean, I am very wary of the word justice because justice comes from this whole idea of one day everything will be fair. Even in nature, nothing is fair, right? An animal is born, newborn animal can be attacked by a wild animal on the day of his birth and be eaten, right? The animal can't go to a lawyer. They just have to live with the fact that there are predators in the forest. Humans create this mythology of justice. Historians have actually believed it. The problem with many of these historians is they don't realize the mythology they live in. When the historian does not accept that there is a ideology governing him or her, that's the problem. The assumption that historians are objective. But we should be careful over there. 
because the ideologist does not even pretend to have logic. Doesn't even pretend to have. He is just living in his fantasy land. So the opposite of a bad historian is not a ideology person who believes in crazy things and crazy theories and flying saucers and dimensions and all kinds of crazy ideas. So we have to be very careful. Whether they like it or not, academia will keep changing the discourse again and again and again with rigor. So we should know this world very carefully, not get confused with it and be no, don't let academia become activism and don't confuse politics with history. History is a very complex subject. You need a proper training and then you can, you know, and that is where we have to be careful. And the historians don't realize that some that they will never align with the state. They will never align with ideology. They'll never be bards. And therefore, nobody likes you. And science is that, you know, science is, um, you know, you put the, uh, you don't get angry with the person who put the snake around your neck. But politicians want you to be angry with the person who put the snake around your neck. That gets you the vote. Justice discourse keeps telling you the past shapes the present. The spiritual discourse will say, no, let me handle today's problem my way. I have to deal with contemporary jealousy, anger, hatred, um, and nobody wants to focus on that. It's like food, clothing, shelter today, right? I'd rather focus on what happened 5,000 years ago. We don't want to talk about the bridges that got broken yesterday. We want to talk about bridges that were built 5,000 years ago. We don't want to talk about forests and sacred forests which had been wiped out by infrastructure today. We want to talk about temples which were broken 5,000 years ago. Now, that's politics. If a historian says that we should not let history repeat itself, they're idiots. History always repeats itself. That's the way nature is. Because human beings, we genuinely believe history will not repeat itself. All these absurd ideas which West try to propagate. doesn't work like that. Humans make stupid things. The world keeps going on and on and on and on. And beach-beach mein koi aata hai, koi bolta hai ki bhaiya, aise mat karo. And as somebody says, those who know, know that history will repeat itself. But they have no power to change history. You have to just silently witness stupid people repeating what has been done before. And that's life. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, Email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.